My name is Pastor John, the associate pastor here at East Shore. I'm glad you've joined us in worship this morning. We're in the middle of a series. We're going through the book of Joshua in the Old Testament. And the last time we were in the book of Joshua, we talked about the Battle of Jericho. The Battle of Jericho. We celebrated a miraculous victory that God gave the people of Israel by bringing down the walls of that great city. But nestled in the very middle of that story about the Battle of Jericho was a very dramatic verse. And so let's look at it. You can either look at it in the Bible in front of you or I've put it up on the screen. This is Joshua 6, 20, and then the verse we're going to look at is verse 21. So in verse 20, it says that the people shouted, the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So that the people went up into the city, every man straight before him. They captured the city. But then look at verse 21. Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys, with the edge of the sword. With the exception of Rahab and her family, a woman who helped the Israelite spies, The Israelites killed everyone, every man, woman, child, and every animal. Now, if we're used to reading the Bible, we might be used to language like this. But for someone who's hearing this for the first time, this sounds quite horrific. And I don't think it'd be wise for us to brush this aside. Think about what's happening here. Every living, every breathing person in Jericho was killed. Why? What could possibly justify such a wholesale slaughter? And to make matters worse, the Israelites were not doing this simply on their own initiative. God himself told them to do it. The loving God that we praise, the God that we tell people to believe in, that God, he told the Israelites to kill every human being in that place. That should make us pause. It should make us think, why would God tell them to do this? What does this say about our God? Well, for an atheist like Richard Dawkins, there can only be one conclusion. He says the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all of fiction. He says this God is jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty ethnic cleanser, a misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, felicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. I can't believe I got that. (laughs) That did not go as well practicing it. (laughs) In all seriousness, though, I, I know it may be hard to read that and to hear those words. But we have to admit, on our first reading through the book of Joshua, what is happening here in chapter 6, it looks an awful lot like ethnic genocide. The people of Israel are killing innocent Canaanites. How is that any different from the Holocaust or the ethnic cleansings that we see in our day? And so if you're not a Christian, the battle of Jericho, it might be really a struggle for you. You might be thinking, I don't want to believe in a God who does that. Christians talk about love, but this sure doesn't look like love to me. Now, for those of us who are committed Christians, there might be a couple ways we think about passages like this. 
one response we could have would be to ignore it. We could say, well, that's not my God. That's not my Jesus. The, the problem with that approach is that then we would have to throw away portions of the Bible. It also means we're saying, I'm right, and the Bible, God's Word, is wrong. And that's a dangerous position to be in. Well, another option we could have, we could downplay passages like this. We could say, well, I, I know the Bible says that, but that was then, and this is now. God's not like that now. He doesn't do that now. Let's turn to the New Testament and let me tell you about Jesus. But if we do that, that really just ignores this issue. God told his people to kill children. That's not something we should brush under a rug. And more seriously, downplaying that passage, well, it implies that our perfect, consistent God was at one time wrong, or at least that he had to change how he was doing things. Even saying a little cliche, saying something like, well, God said it, I believe it. Even saying that, that can be just another way to ignore the problems that passages like this bring up. Now, we will never understand everything God does, and we need to learn to be content with that fact. But that doesn't mean we should give up trying to understand him better. That's why the best option for every person, whether you are a Christian or not, is to try to understand passages like this. Let's not assume things. Let's not ignore things. Let's take the time to figure out what is really happening here. So today, we're going to talk about why there is so much killing in the Bible. But I'm really focused on the book of Joshua. Why did God tell the Israelites to kill every person in cities like Jericho? That's really my focus today. What factors do we need to consider to understand this event? And let me give you two warnings in advance. First, this will be a little bit different in that we're not going to be in one text, but we are going to read a lot of Scripture passages today. They'll all be up on the screen, but there's a lot more than there normally is. I'm doing that because I want God's Word to guide our discussion this morning. The second warning I have to give you is that there's no one-size-fits-all answer. I'm not going to tell you something that you're like, oh, this settles it forever in, in my mind. I'm going to give you several responses. I'm going to give you multiple factors to consider. Maybe some of them will resonate with you, and maybe some won't. Maybe you'll hear one goes, ah, oh, that's not really a good argument, Pastor John. Okay, but what I would ask you to do is to hear all of the evidence and then make a decision about how you are going to respond to this passage, and more importantly, how are you are going to respond to the God who did this and the God who passed it on to us through his word. So with that said, let's open our time in God's Word with prayer. Lord, we're looking at something in Scripture that is difficult to understand. And God, as we approach these things that are hard to understand, it reminds us that we can only begin to understand your Word because you are with us. God, right now we need your presence with us to help us grasp what you are trying to convey to us in this portion of Scripture. Be with us, God. Open our eyes to see the truth that you have here in your Word. Right now I pray that you will be our focus during this time. And we not let ourselves get away, but see you in a better and in a clearer light. 
to borrow words from John the Baptist, may you increase now, God. May we decrease. Lord, help us to understand this killing we see in the book of Joshua. And may our study today lead us to know and to worship you and to know and worship your son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen. Well, if you look on your note sheet, we're going to talk about seven factors, seven things to think about as we try to answer this question. The first factor we're going to look at is the nature of the Bible and the character of God. The nature of the Bible and the character of God. I don't know if you've noticed, but the Bible is a big book, and it is full of a lot of different kinds of writing. Each book is essential. Each book teaches us something about God. There's no one book and there's no one verse that tells us everything that we need to know about the Lord. We need the whole thing. On the one hand, the Bible tells us that God is love, that he is full of grace, mercy, and forgiveness. Yet, the Bible also tells us that God is holy, he is righteous, and he is good. He is separate, he is distinct from our human tendency towards sin and failure. And his righteous and justice nature means that he must punish, he must destroy sin. This is not just something true of big God the Father, this is true of every person of the Trinity. Jesus was full of loving patience at his first coming, but it will not be that way for his enemies at his return. In Revelation 19.15, this is talking about Jesus, says, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them. Jesus will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. So we need to look at all of the Bible to understand God. The verses we're going to look at in Joshua that tell us of death and destruction, they are not all the Bible has to say about God. Much of the Bible is about his love, grace, and mercy. But on the other hand, it's also not true to say that God never punishes sinners, and we have to take both of these things together. For an example of that, the second factor we're going to talk about is the Canaanites as a whole. The Canaanites as a whole. The truth is that the Canaanites were not a nation of friendly, innocent, peace-loving people. The Canaanites lived in a collection of city-states that were committed to idolatry and some of the worst sins imaginable. Noah had named their ancestor and namesake Canaan. He had cursed him way back in Genesis. And it seems that most of these people had a strong bent toward evil. They consistently acted against God's law. In Leviticus 20, 22 and 23, This is God telling the Israelites, he says, you shall therefore keep all my statutes, all my rules and do them, that the land where I am bringing you to live may not vomit you out. You shall not walk in the customs of the nation that's already there, the nation that I am driving out before you. For they did all these things, and therefore, God says, I detested them. Well, pastor, what kind of things did they do? Well, to start with, they were very steeped in the practices of false religion. In its most extreme form, this religion promoted child sacrifice. I already used this picture once, but this is an artist's representation of worship of one of the gods there, Molech. 
and how they would worship him is they would build these idols out of metals. They would heat the idols so that their hands were scalding hot, and then they would put infants into the hands of this idol. This is what those people of the land were doing. And so in Deuteronomy 18.12, God says about those practices and about the occult, whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. Because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. God gave the Canaanites hundreds of years of grace to change their ways, but they refused. They were also extremely sexually immoral. There were many cults and temple prostitutes. The Lord instructed his people to avoid every kind of sin. And then he said in Leviticus 18, 24, and 25, do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these, the nations I'm driving out before you, they've become unclean. The land became unclean so that I punished its iniquity and sin. The land vomited out its inhabitants. They were not only sexually immoral, they not only sacrificed children, they also passed on these practices. They taught them to the people that they interacted with. And so one of the main things God told the Israelites to do was not to intermarry with the Canaanites. And Moses explains this in Deuteronomy 7. He says, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. Why? For they would turn away your sons from following me to serve other gods. And then the anger of the Lord would be kindled against you, and he would destroy you quickly. Look at that there. The issue is not that the Canaanites were a different ethnicity. The difference was that they worshipped other gods. Because who we worship is much more important than who our parents were. God had already told his people this in Exodus 23:33, saying about the Canaanites, they shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Over hundreds of years, the Canaanites kept on sinning in incredibly wicked ways. And it was kind of like those giant water buckets at, at a water park. They kept pouring in water, kept pouring in sin until God's wrath just had to pour out. If we had more time, we could look at more examples of their sin-infested society. There's more in Scripture. But as a whole, the Canaanites practiced a religion that promoted evil practices. They ensnared those they came in contact with, and their hearts were hardened against correction. Now, let me pause here. I know that to a 21st century mind, this all sounds really judgmental because we react, and I say we react correctly against judging a whole group of people by the actions of a few. And in daily life, it is far better for us to treat every person as an individual. We should treat every person we meet with the dignity and respect that they deserve as being created in the image of God. However, it's a bit harder to think that way, apply that in the book of Joshua. Was there a Canaanite who we could have found, a a man who treated his neighbors well and was really nice? Well, there, there probably was. But the book of Joshua and the Old Testament as a whole, it's more concerned about nations, about countries altogether, rather than the actions of one individual. 
In fact, the Old Testament is primarily about God's dealing with one group of people. Yes, there are many individuals in the Old Testament. We know the heroes, Abraham, Daniel, David. We, we know these names. But the Old Testament is mostly about how God interacts with the people of Israel. It is more focused on nations, on communities, and on people groups than on individuals. And that's why I've been trying to emphasize the book of Joshua is more the story of God bringing his people into the promised land. It's really more about that than it is about Joshua and the battles that he won. And in the same way, the Old Testament describes how God interacts with, and he often punishes other nations, like the Canaanites. And if that sounds unfair, then hold on a few minutes, because you're going to see this judgment cuts both ways. God is just and fair in his treatment of other nations. Moses explains this to the Israelites in Deuteronomy 9, verses 4 and 5. This is a great passage helping us see God's heart here. God says to them, do not say in your heart, well, Moses talking to the people, do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. They're, they're not to say, well, it's because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the, this land. Moses says, no, it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. It's not because of your righteousness. It's not because of the uprightness of your heart that you're going in to possess the land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. The point is God didn't bring the Israelites into Canaan because they were a better people. It really had nothing to do with how good or bad the Israelites were. God took the promised land from the Canaanites because of their sin. It was God's judgment against them. Well, what is this judgment? What exactly is God telling the Israelites to do? The third point we're going to look at is what God told the Israelites to do to the Canaanites. What did he tell them to do? We're going to kind of walk through the first few five books of the Bible, which some passages that highlight what God told them to do. The first one that kicks it off is Exodus 23, 27 to 31. This is a long passage, but it tells us what exactly God wanted the Israelites to do. God says, I will send my terror before you. I will throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs to you. I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out from before you in one year, because then the land would become desolate. The wild beast would multiply against you. Instead, little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you have increased and possess the land. And I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, from the wilderness to the Euphrates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand and you shall drive them out before you. Now, there was a lot going on in that passage, but if you are an observant person, you noticed I did italicize a phrase that showed up a few times. There was this repeated phrase of drive them out. God said he was driving out the Canaanites and that the people of Israel were to do the same thing. 
there was an interesting reference in there to something about hornets, and we're not exactly sure what that means. But in some way, God was compelling the Canaanites to leave the promised land. Somehow he was communicating to them that they should leave the land or be destroyed. And his people were called to continue this work of pushing the Canaanites out of the land. The point is, this was not one fell swoop of genocide. It was a gradual progress, a gradual process of removing a sinful people from the promised land. And this idea of driving out the Canaanites, it continues in the other books leading into Joshua. It's going to become a a little repetitive here, but you're going to see this phrase shows up a lot. In Exodus 34, observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. For I will cast out nations before you and enlarge your borders. Then in Numbers 33, 51 and 52, God tells Moses, speak to the people of Israel. Say to them, when you pass over the Jordan into the land of Canaan, then you shall drive out all the inhabitants of the land from before you. You'll destroy their figured stones. You'll destroy all their metal images, demolish all their high places. Then Moses speaks to the people in the book of Deuteronomy, and he repeats this instruction. You shall do what is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may go well with you, that you may go in and take possession of the good land that the Lord swore to give to your fathers. You do this by thrusting out all your enemies from before you, as the Lord has promised. And then he brings it up another time in Deuteronomy 11. He says, be careful to obey all these commands I am giving you now. Show love to the Lord your God by walking in his ways, holding tightly to him. And then what will God do? Then the Lord will drive out all the nations ahead of you. Though they are much greater and stronger than you, you will take over their land. If you go back and look at some of the passages we looked at earlier when I was talking about the Canaanites' sinful practices, you'll see that language again of driving out. So yes, God told the Israelites to kill the Canaanites, but those they killed were those who refused to be driven out. God's desire was to remove them from the land, not to kill them all. It was those who stayed who died. In addition, there was really only three cities we read about that the Israelites completely destroyed and killed everyone in. That was Jericho, Ai, and Hatzor. We'll read about all three of them in the book of Joshua. It seems that in most cases, the Israelites were successful in driving the Canaanites out rather than killing everyone. Now, we still may be kind of uncomfortable with this idea. God is telling people to force others from their homes. But do you know something? God treated the Israelites the same way. God treated the Israelites the same. When the Israelites eventually rejected God's rule, they rejected his reign over their land, his rule over their hearts and minds, well, God forced them out of the land. In fact, there's even a passage where he gave them the same option he gave the Canaanites, leave or be destroyed. This is in Jeremiah 21, 8 through 10. God says to the prophet, To this people you shall say, thus says the Lord, behold, I set before you the way of life and the way of death. He who stays in this city shall die by the sword, by famine and by pestilence. But 
He who goes out, he who leaves, surrenders to the Chaldeans, the Babylonians, and goes into exile, the person who goes out of the city shall live, shall have his life as a prize of war. God says, I've set my face against this city for harm and not for good. It shall be given into the hand of the king of Babylon. He shall burn it with fire. This is talking about Jerusalem, saying God has set his face against it. The people could leave or be destroyed. It's exactly what happened to the Canaanites. They could be removed from the land by the Babylonians, or they could stay and die. And in both cases, the Canaanites and the Israelites, it is their sin that forces God to remove them from the land. It didn't matter who it was. It didn't matter if they were Canaanites. It didn't matter if they were Israelites. Their sin led to their expulsion from their home. And then after the Israelites came back from their exile, they're back in the promised land, God brings this up again. In the very last book of the Old Testament, God threatens the Israelites with destruction if they reject his messenger. This is Malachi 4, 5, and 6. He says, I will send the prophet Elijah before the great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. He will turn the hearts of the parents to their children, the hearts of children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. And if you know your history of God, of what happened to the Israelites, they rejected this Elijah, this John the Baptist, with the message that he brought. They rejected the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and his person and work. And in the year 70 AD, they were again forced out of the land. Now you might say, okay, so God does it to both the Canaanites and the Israelites. But you know, Pastor, the Canaanites, they had, not the Canaanites, the Israelites had God's law. They knew what God wanted. How did the Canaanites know what was happening? God wasn't speaking to them, giving them commandments. So this fifth factor we're going to consider is what the Canaanites knew. And guess what? We have at least three times where the Canaanites are said to grasp this message, that they understand what God is doing. The first time was after God parted the Red Sea for his people to escape Egypt. Once that happened, Moses and the Israelites, they sang a song talking about what this meant. And look at what they sing in Exodus 15, verses 14 and 16. The Israelites sing, the peoples have heard, they tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. Look at this. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. Did you see that? The inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Forty years before the Israelites actually got to the promised land, the people who were there were already starting to leave. Even though God tolerated their sin for hundreds of years, they had another 40 years of grace before the Israelites arrived. But did this message reach the Canaanites? Moses thinks it does, but did they actually understand this? Well, look at a passage we read just a few weeks ago from Joshua 2. This is Rahab in the city of Jericho. She comes to the spies she has hidden. Before they lay down, she came up to them on the roof, and this is what she says. I know. I know that the Lord has given you the land, that the fear of you has fallen upon us, that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For 
we have heard, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And we've heard what you just did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. There was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Rahab had heard about the Red Sea. It was 40 years before this, but she had heard what God did. She had also heard about the two kings they had just defeated within the past year. The point of this is that the Israelites did not surprise the Canaanites. This wasn't a sneak attack, a sudden raid into this land. The Canaanites knew who these people were. They knew what God had done for them, and they knew that they were coming their way. We're going to see this again in a few weeks when we get to Joshua chapter 9. There's a group of Canaanites called the Gibeonites. They trick Joshua and the people into signing a peace treaty with them. And in Joshua 9, 9, this is what the Gibeonites say. They say, from a very distant country, your servants have come. This is them lying. But they say, why? Because of the name of the Lord your God. For we have heard a report of him and all that he did in Egypt. Even well over a hundred, if not hundreds of miles away, they had heard what the Lord had done. And then later in the chapter, when they're confronted with their lie, this is their reply to Joshua. Why did we lie to you? Because it was told to your servants for a certainty. It was told to them with certainty. They were guaranteed that the Lord your God has commanded his servant Moses to give you all the land, to destroy all the inhabitants that are still in the land before you. So we feared greatly for our lives because of you. And that is why we did this thing. You see that? The Canaanites, the Gibeonites, they knew with certainty that God was giving the Israelites their land. And they also knew that if they stayed, they would be destroyed. They decided to trick the Israelites because they knew that it was useless to fight against them. So what's the point of all this? What are you trying to say, Pastor? I'm saying the Canaanites had options, and they knew those options. A professor I had named Michael Smith, he wrote them out this way, saying Rahab demonstrated a choice that every Canaanite had to face in light of the evidence. Option one, or letter A, they could choose to get out of the land. They could migrate. They could leave in face of this threat that they had known for over 40 years was coming. Number two, B, they could stay and they could fight even though they see this God is doing great things for this people. Number three, letter C, they could recognize that Israel's God was the true God and choose to join them. Leave, fight, or join. Again, look at this. The issue is not the Canaanites' blood. The issue was their hearts. Would they worship the false, immoral, man-made gods, or would they come to know the one true God? And those choices, I think, are so important because they reveal what God wants. And that's why the sixth factor we're going to look at is God's desire for repentance. God's desire for repentance. 
I was given an article about this issue, and in it, Pastor Charles Stanley, he helpfully pointed out that as you think about this difficult subject, remember, God's goal is the destruction of wickedness, not people. His goal is the destruction of wickedness, not people. God was judging the sin of the Canaanites as a whole, but there was still grace available for any Canaanite who wanted it. Ezekiel 18, 27 and 28, God says this, when a wicked man turns away or repents, turns away from his wickedness, which he has committed, when he practices justice and righteousness, he changes, life has changed, he will save his life. Because he considered he turned away from his transgressions, which he has committed, he shall surely live and he shall not die. What God wanted then and what God wants now is repentance. He wants sinful people to turn away from their sin, to turn toward him in faith and trust. In verse 32 of Ezekiel, he adds, God says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone, declares the sovereign Lord. So repent, turn from your sin, and live. Rahab, again, is the primary example of this. She was a prostitute, She was a serious sexual sinner, yet she turned from that sin. She embraced faith in the true God, and she found grace and salvation. She saw the options God had given the Canaanites. We just talked about them. She saw that she could run, she could stay, she could join. She chose wisely. The Apostle Paul writes about God's grace in Romans 2, 4, and 5. Don't you see how the wonderfully kind, tolerant, and patient God is with you? Does this mean nothing to you? Can't you see that his kindness is intended to turn you from your sin? Some translations have bring you to repentance. It means the same thing. But because you're stubborn, you refuse to turn from your sin, you refuse to repent, well, then you're storing up terrible punishment for yourself. For a day of anger is coming when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. If God wanted to, he's God. If he wanted to, he could kill every sinner right away. The moment they sin, the moment they think of a sin, God could get rid of them. But instead, instead he gives people time to repent, time to turn from their sin. If they don't repent, if they don't turn, well, they're storing up more wrath for God's day of judgment. But if they do turn to God, well, then they come to know his kindness in a deeper way. However, they do not have forever to decide this. The Apostle Peter adds some urgency to this. This is in 2 Peter 3, 9 and 10. He says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness. He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar. God desires for sinners to come to repentance. But when Christ comes, well, then judgment will come with him. Like the Canaanites in Joshua, every person who does not have a relationship with God has limited time to choose him. And that's why the seventh, the very last factor we should talk about this morning is how we should apply 
God's judgment? How do we apply what God is doing to the Canaanites, to our lives today? Is this just something then, or does it affect, does it impact our lives today? And I believe there's application for both Christians and non-Christians in this truth. For Christians, we learn that sin is deadly serious. My friend, if you are a Christian allowing sin in your life, you must take action now. Paul wrote in Romans 8.13, if you live, if you walk according to the flesh, if you continue, persist in sin, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. God did not tolerate sin in the promised land, and we should not tolerate it in our lives either. We should do whatever it takes to remove or to kill sin in our lives. It would lead us astray. It would damage our lives if we leave it alone. Act today and act decisively to deal with your sin. Work with God's Holy Spirit to kill your sin. Remove it from your life so that you can become more like Jesus. Now, if you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ this morning, then the warning to the Canaanites is the same warning to you. Death and judgment are coming for each one of us. In the words of Hebrews 9, 27 and 28, we read it before the offering, just as it is appointed for man to die once, after that comes judgment. One life and then judgment. But Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many, and he will appear a second time. And when he does, he will not deal with sin, he will not pay for it again, but he will save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Every one of us in this room has only one life. And once it is over, each of us will be before God. If you do not know Jesus Christ, then you will be judged for your sin and rebellion against God. I'm not making this up to scare you. I'm telling you the truth. Just judgment is coming. But, as this verse shows us, but there is hope. Jesus lived the life you could not live. He died in your place, not only so you could escape judgment, but so that you could have a joyful relationship with him now. Like Rahab, you can turn from your sin and you can embrace salvation in God through Jesus Christ. No one knows how much time you have. So please, please, Call out to him before it is too late. You can ask me about it after the service. You can talk to someone who you know has a relationship with Jesus about how you too can come to know him. Please get those answers. So why is there so much killing in the Bible? Why do we see all this death and destruction in Joshua? Well, it teaches us about God's character. He judges sinners like the Canaanites. He told his people to drive them out of the promised land the same way the Israelites were eventually driven out. The Canaanites knew that they could either flee and live, fight or die, or join God's people. God's desire was for them to come to repentance, and that's the same thing he desires for every sinner today. So what do you think about all of that? Maybe you've heard all that and you're still not satisfied. It still doesn't quite feel right to you. And if you remember, I told you at the beginning that there's no one-size-fits-all answer to this question. 
But if I may, would I ask you, will you keep searching for answers? My prayer is that you would keep searching after the truth and that you would not choose to reject God. My prayer is you continue to seek after Him, to know Him, to know Him in a better way, to come to a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and to worship our great God and Savior because He alone is worthy.